Green Radiance City. My name is Raymond, and I'm a partner here, and it is my pleasure this morning to be able to share this message from the Word of God. If it's your first time here, welcome. If you're listening online, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. And I, more than that, I, I hope that as you leave, that you will be glad that you're here as well. Today, we're going to be finishing up a sermon series in the, through the book of Psalms. And our text today is, is what Marcia just read so well, verse, Psalm 32. But before we get into that, I just wanted to kind of recap the last five weeks as we've been going through this series. We started with Psalm 1, and we learned how to be blessed by being planted and rooted in God's word. We looked at Psalm 63, and we were reminded about the importance and prioritizing, even developing a, a longing to worship with one another. We studied the famous Psalm 23 and heard how God protects and cares for us. We joined together in praising God in Psalm 113, and we were reminded how praise should be on our lips from the moment we wake up till the time we lay our head down. And then this past Sunday, in Psalm 78, we were called to the responsibility of passing our faith down to the next generation. Today, in Psalm 32, I've entitled this message, Rejoicing in Restoration. Now, restoration can be a long and difficult process. Restoration is also an ongoing and a continual process. Restoration can be defined as the act of returning something to the former owner, place, or condition. And today we'll be taking a look about how God is in the process of returning us to our former owner, place, and condition. Every homeowner knows that if left without any regular maintenance, our houses will quickly deteriorate and it will cost us more time and more money. So real quick, just for fun, uh, hopefully on the screen these things come up, but I have a couple of slides here to show us some big restoration projects. The first one is a Protestant church in Germany. It was destroyed in World War II. It lay in ruins for 49 years. But as they started the meticulous process of restoration, they began with some of the same original materials that this, this uh, thing was built out of. The restoration process took over 21 years, but they made it look exactly like it did before it was destroyed. Another example of restoration is St. Paul's Cathedral in London. This was also under attack in World War II, and it was such an iconic place that volunteers were charged to protect the cathedral under Winston Churchill's orders that this cathedral must be saved at all costs. After the war, the five years of rebuilding began, and at the end, they lit it up to celebrate the victory of the Allies. Lastly, there is an example of this beautiful opera house in Barcelona that was burned down in 1994. It took five years and $95 million to restore it. Now, just like these three examples, we have sustained damage. Some of that is just regular wear and tear from the inside. 
but some is also from the outside, from the world's worries and Satan's attacks. However, no matter what the damage is, we have a God that is working to restore us. We have a God who's protecting us. And no matter how long it takes, no matter how much it costs him, he forgives us and he works to restore us to our original designs. So this leads us to the question, what are we being restored to? And as a way of introduction, I just want to go through some of Genesis to see what our original design is, what our relationship with God should be and could be. So if you follow along, as we go back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, we see the story of our creation. We see a planning meeting as Father God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are getting together. They're having a family meeting. Hopefully it's running smoother than any committee meeting. But in Genesis 1, 26, we see it says, Then God said, let, there, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the earth. God plans to create humans to be like him. He planned us to rule, and he planned us to work. God calls this all very good. And then we see a new relationship being established, God and his creation coming together in this relationship. God, again, doing most of the work in our original design. Genesis 2 Verses 7 through 9 says, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord began to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So from this passage, we see that God provides life and breath. It just says the breath of life. He provides shelter as he planted a garden to shade us and protect us. He provides direction because he was the one who put Adam there. He guided him and placed him there. He provides beauty. It says right there that, that God made trees not just to eat, but that were pleasant to look at. He provides beauty for us. He provides food for us to eat, provision. And then he says he provided the tree of life, this eternal life. is a symbol of everlasting life that God provides. Now, as the chapter continues, we see two more. In verse 18, it says, it is not good for man to be alone. And God provides community, just like he was in community in himself. He provides us community. And then verse 25, it says, and man, sorry, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. God provides intimacy and wants this relationship with us. This is our original design. This is how it's supposed to be. Now, how many of us can say that we're still on track with all of these things? Are we living in God? Are we living in his shelter, following his direction, appreciating his beauty, and provision? Are we living in spiritual community? Do we have intimacy with Jesus? Are we communing with him on a regular basis? Now, many times with me, I feel like a circus performer. 
not only do I have five kids, but I have the responsibilities of job, family. We have the enjoyment of hobbies and friends. And I feel like I'm trying to juggle too many things. Now, most of us, if we try to juggle at all, there's going to be a ball that's dropped. And we lose, easily lose sight of the thing that's most important, this relationship with God. Other things will knock down all of the, the balls that we're trying to juggle if we don't keep the main reason and purpose for our lives in focus. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the beginning of this downfall, the beginning of this brokenness. Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is where all brokenness begins. Now, I know that some of you might be saying, that's Adam and Eve. I wasn't there. <laughs> I didn't eat the fruit. So what does this have to do with me? How does this affect me? I don't have time this morning to go into all of the reasons, the attitudes, and the heart condition that led to this one sinful act. But I will say that life experience and history prove that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We all have natural desires that are opposed to God's character and will. We all make choices to do what we know is not right and to not do what we do know is right. In three chapters after this scenario, in Genesis chapter 6, the sinfulness of mankind has become so great and the wickedness on earth had become so prevalent that God had to send a flood to totally destroy the earth. Now, could you imagine in our lives if God sent a flood every time our wickedness became so great? Every three chapters of our history would be God wiping everybody out and him starting all over again. But thank God for his covenant promise that he won't do that again. Thank God for Jesus, who is ultimately God's rescue plan. With this as our backdrop, we'd like to look at the big idea of today's message. When we confess our sin, God forgives and restores. Just that simple. I'll say it one more time. Our big idea for today is when we confess our sin, God forgives and restores. And we'll dive into the text and see the process of restoration. All right, Psalm 32 is a maskal of David. A maskal simply means a reflective contemplation. So what was David thinking about? David had some highs and lows. He'd been through a lot in his life. He had great victories and great failures. We see a young boy, David, out there in the field, and he goes up to the Lord's armies. He sees everybody shaking in their armor, and he goes out and fights Goliath, knocking him down with a single stone, claiming victory over the Philistines. But then we also see David lounging and reclining at home and letting himself give in to the sin of adultery and covering it up with the act of murder. After these, this great moral failing, God begins a restoration process in David's life. 
we see his raw emotion in, 51, in Psalm 51. This is really a companion psalm to the one that we're studying today, verse Psalm 32. Uh, in Psalm 51, David's brokenness, he says here in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So he's using his personal experience here to teach us how God had worked a restoration process in his life. God forgave him and began to bring him back to the original design. Now, in Psalm 32, we start out with a declaration. It's a beautiful declaration. It says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Isn't that something to praise God for? Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Now, we'll come back to this verse in just a minute. We're going to start in verses 3 and 4, where we find the first step in the restoration process. So step one, hopefully this uh, can follow along, is we have three steps of restoration. Step one, we have to admit that we're broken. Okay, Read along with me here as we read verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Though groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. David's describing his brokenness as his bones wasting, as a constant groaning and heaviness. Maybe this heaviness was on his chest or on his shoulders and his strength being zapped by the summer. Have any of you felt the weight of your sin like this? I think most of us can understand the last one here that being zapped by the heat of the summer. I mean, you just have to go outside and you just like melt and you don't want to do anything. Sin, likewise, will steal our strength. It will leave us with a heaviness that can be crushing. In David's case, his one sin of passion was the beginning of a downward spiral as he tried to deny and cover up his sin. He went so far in his sin as he tried to have a man killed. Or he did have a man killed. Now, Again, you might say, what does David's sin have to do with me? Well, I hope that none of you have had a physical affair or plotted a man's murder. But we all have sinned and covered it up. The nature of sin is deceptive. Satan lied to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lied about who was responsible for their sin. And then they lied about where they were. They hid from God. This beautiful relationship that God had created with Adam and Eve, broken, two pieces, God and man, separated. Instead of wanting to be with him and walk with him in the garden, Adam and Eve hid. They preferred to be separated. Sin will always separate us from God. We don't want to admit it when we step out of the light, out of God's presence and out of God's will. However, hiding our sin or holding it inside, only allows it to grow and fester and rot. The Bible says the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. David was expressing how he was physically dying on the inside because of 
unconfessed and unrepentant sin. This is an important point. Not always, but sometimes our spiritual sin can lead to physical ailments. Okay? Now, another example of this is in 1 Corinthians. Some of the church members were taking communion in an unworthy manner. And the Bible tells us that this is why many of you were weak and ill, and some have died. They were physically dying because of their spiritual sin. This isn't murder. This isn't adultery. These Corinthians had a bad attitude in their heart. They were taking communion with unworthy hearts. We have all sinned. We've all, we are all broken. If we don't admit that we're broken, we're, we're lying to ourselves. The Apostle John, in his letter at the end of his life, says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. So we've established we're all sinners. Now, before you get too depressed, let's keep the big idea in focus. When we confess our sin, God forgives and God restores. Here's a New Testament example of someone who really understood her own brokenness. The author of Luke describes her as a woman of the city who was a sinner. She was an outcast to be completely avoided. She was the person that was considered so dirty and sinful that if she touched you or you touched her by accident, you would have to go through a whole ceremonial cleansing process. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, weeping over her sin. The religious leaders became so uncomfortable with her presence and her actions that they began to ask Jesus to do something about it. And he answers back like this in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 47. It says, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon, the Pharisee, answered, The one, I suppose, whom, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning back to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, as I was studying this week, I was convicted. When was the last time I wept over my sin, over my own brokenness, and its devastating consequences in my relationship with God and my relationship with the ones around me? Now, for those still holding out on me, thinking in their heads that they're still mostly good, compared to others, they're doing all right, maybe even better than most, Let's take a look back at the first two verses. Like I said, we're getting back to the beginning here. I had skipped over these. We're going to go back to them. Verses 1 and 2. We see how David wants us to understand 
that this message is for every single one of us. In the first two verses, he uses four different words to describe wrongdoing, normally what we would just call sin. So read these two verses with me at the beginning of Psalm 32. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom, sorry, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom spirit there is no deceit. So four different reasons. David is giving us a holistic picture of what we would normally just call sin. Transgression is the first word that he uses. It's this act of crossing over the line, defying authority, just like someone who trespasses in a property that's not theirs. Sin, which is the term we're most familiar with, is this idea of missing the mark, falling short. When we look at God's holiness and compare it to our lives, we fall woefully short. It's like trying to throw a football from here to Orlando. The ball's going to come up short. Iniquity is a general crookedness or distortion. It's when we see things that are unjust, like bad guys going free and the good guy getting falsely accused. And finally, deceit. This is the idea of concealing or misrepresenting the truth. When people trick us to try to get us to think something's true when it's not. It's misleading. So now, I hope I have everyone with me in this point that all of us have crossed the line. We've done things that are wrong. We have sin and brokenness in our life. So let's move forward. Keep, keep the ball going forward here as we go into the second step in this restoration process. We have to confess our weakness. Now that we admit it to ourselves, we have to confess our weakness. Read along with me as we continue in verse 5. And this is where I got the main idea for the message today. Verse 5 and following says this. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Confession. We have to communicate. We have to, sorry, we have to communicate with others what we've just admitted to ourselves. Even when we know we've done something wrong, it's still hard to confess it. It's still hard to go to that person and, and tell them we've done something wrong. But the act of confession makes it more real. It becomes almost tangible. So some of you Bible scholars might be thinking, well, God is omniscient. He doesn't he know that I'm sorry? Doesn't he already know that I did something wrong and that I've changed my ways? Why do I have to confess? Why do I have to say that I was wrong? We act like this with our family sometimes, too. Not wanting to tell others and say out loud, confess to them that we've done something wrong. But let me give you some reasons why we should confess. First, there is power in the spoken word. 
God literally spoke the whole universe into existence. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us God said eight times as he was creating the, the universe. God said, and it was, over and over again, eight times. We see this again in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James says it this way, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Did David need some healing? Do we need some healing from our brokenness? Maybe we have a heaviness weighing on us. Maybe we have insomnia, ulcers, anxiety. It could be from unconfessed sin. Not always, but it could be unconfessed sin. And just as a disclaimer, if you are having any of those symptoms, please go see a medical provider. All right? We also find that confession is a necessary part of our salvation. Romans 10.10 says, For if with the heart we believe and are justified, but it's with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. As I mentioned earlier this morning, this psalm is David's teaching from his personal experience. In Psalm 51, we hear David's crying out to God, confessing his sin, admitting it in his heart, but then confessing it to God as he works out this restoration in his relationship with God. Psalm 51.4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's confessing to God. A New Testament illustration of this point can be found in the story of the prodigal son. Many of you have heard this story, but let me point out how this story fits with our big idea. Luke chapter 15, verses 20 through 23 says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced and kissed him. And then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father's response. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. When we confess our sin, God is ready to connect with us. There's no probationary period. There's no, hmm, I'll wait and see if he's really truly sorry. There's no 14 years that Jacob had to wait for Rachel and work off this marriage. God, who was depicted by the father in this parable, jumps into action. He clothes his son, representing and symbolizing shelter and protection. He gives him a ring, symbolizing kinship and authority. He brings him shoes for his feet, symbolizing direction and ministry. And he kills the fattened calf, symbolizing provision and abundance. The prodigal son confesses to the father, and the father jumps into action, providing for the son, providing forgiveness and restoration. In this text, we see the same is true for David as he confesses to God. Let's go back to our text, Psalm 32, verses 6 and 7. It tells us, 
Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with great shouts of deliverance. God is protecting us from the disasters of this world. He's pulling us out and lifting us up above the waters. Now, our family was fortunate this summer. We were able to vacation on the west coast of Florida. And as much as my three-year-old little Rosie loved being in the water, she did not like when the water would go over her head and she'd get the salt water taste in her mouth. She'd start spitting and wiping her face and she'd want me to take her all the way out of the water so that she could wipe her face off in a towel. She liked it much better when I was able to scoop her up, carry her into the water, and hold her right above the water. And as the waves came, I could lift her just above the wave. God does this for us. He protects us from the waves of adversity and sadness and trouble in our lives. There's no way to stop the waves from coming, but thanks be to God that there is a way There is a God that's big enough and strong enough to lift us high above the rush of the great waters. As we continue to pull out truths from 6 and 7, let me ask you another question, Radiant City. Where are you hiding? Now let me explain. Earlier we talked about the nature of sin and how when we sin, it naturally leads to us hiding, hiding our sin or hiding ourselves. If we're living in unconfessed and unrepentant sin, we may be hiding in the dark places, hiding our little pet sin. Or are we hiding in Jesus? Here in verse 7, David is stating that Jesus is his hiding place with protection and victory being declared. Just listen to the many other verses throughout Psalms that describe how God protects and wins our victory for us. 28.1, O Lord, my rock. 28.7, the Lord is my strength and my shield, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. 43.2 says, you are God, my stronghold. 46.1 says, God is my refuge and strength, my ever-present help in trouble. And you can see on down the list, I'm just going to read the last one here. Psalm 144.2 kind of has a summary of all of these different attributes of God. It says, He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. God is our refuge. God is our stronghold and mighty one. So if we had any fear or hesitation to confess our sin, know that God is awesome and mighty that God will scoop us up in his shelter and protection, and we should be able to confess quickly and thoroughly, knowing that God is holding us. This leads us to our last step in the restoration process. So step three is that we have to rejoice in God's forgiveness. This is where God wants to ultimately lead us back to the original design and desire for us. Verse 11 tells us, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We are to be glad. We are to rejoice, to shout for joy, hallelujah, for what God has done. 
The Bible tells us the truth in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. Philippians says it pretty clearly. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The verse that Pastor Cameron read at prayer time, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Did you catch that? This is the will of God. This is a hint back to our original design. We're to be thankful and to give God praise. This is what we were made for. In the process of rejoicing, God is restoring us to who we were meant to be. Rousley, our brother, reminded us a couple weeks ago as he preached Psalm 113 that we should be praising God all day long. When is a good time to praise God? All the time, right? I love how Paul starts his letter to the the church in Philippi. He says, I thank God in all my remembrances of you. We should be thanking God for what he's doing every time we think of God. And our eyes should be open to the moving and working of God throughout our lives, throughout the everyday, ordinary things that God is doing for us. Do we see God's hand of protection in our lives? Maybe as we're driving to work each day. If we're driving on I-95, we need God's protection in our lives. God is all things around us. He's always with us. We just have to keep our eyes open and our ears open and our hearts open to see what God is doing. Some things that help me praise God are some of the simple everyday things. Having hot running water in a shower. Eating really good food and the laughter of my children. What are some ways that you experience God in your life? As a kid, I was fortunate to travel to a lot of interesting and beautiful places. And one little silly thing that my family used to do is that my dad would make me and my brother, because we were very ungrateful children, like most children, he would make us stop and admire the beauty around us. Whether it was the natural beauty of creation at a national park, or it was the beauty of a painting in a museum. He'd say, kids, say, ooh, ah. So my brother and I would stop and say, ooh, ah. But this was a really good way that my dad instilled in us that we can stop and appreciate the beauty around us. Have you ever watched a sunset and not been amazed? That's God. He's restoring something in your soul, allowing beauty in. He's providing a beautiful gift of grace for you to enjoy. Remember the garden that God provides every tree that is pleasant to the sight? He didn't have to do that, but he does. He gives us this good and perfect gift, as James describes it. Let us rejoice and praise God for all that he's done and all that he provides for us. The Bible tells us that we're to praise God with our whole being, The greatest and first commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Are we doing the right thing, maybe with the wrong heart attitude? Now remember the Corinthian church. They were breaking bread together as the Lord commanded, but their hearts were not in the right place. And they were getting sick, physically ill. When David says here in our text, in Psalm 32, Verse 8 and 9, I will instruct you 
in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse and the mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. He's saying, don't be a stubborn mule. Don't get yanked around by your master. Take instruction from your master, and your brokenness will be turned into beauty. Do you know what it means to break a horse? It means to train it. It means to literally break its will as you're curbing it and training it to be responsive to the rider. When a horse is properly broken and trained, it's so responsive that you don't need to yank on the reins. It doesn't even need a bit or a bridle. A simple shifting in the saddle from the right or to the left will tell the horse which direction to go. A simple, whoa, will get the horse to stop. The horse's broken spirit turns into a beautiful relationship as the horse and rider become one, their wills merging to develop this special union. This newly formed partnership allows both horse and rider to benefit. Both end up better off than they were at the beginning. The horse is cared for. It has shelter, protection, and maybe even shoes for its feet. And the rider is able to travel quicker, carry more, and even battle more victoriously. Brokenness, yielding to greater strength. Similarly, we know that broken bones heal stronger than they were before. So does God restore us to the same? Or is he making us better? Is he giving us greater strength and greater beauty? When we understand our limitations of who we are and whose we are, we are being restored to something even better, becoming one like the horse and rider. Dear Christian, have you sinned? Praise God. Now, I'm not rejoicing in sin, for Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. But praise God that he's forgiven you and does not hold your sin against you. The sin that separates has been removed, and there's now a way to be restored. Another truth that encourages me is that our sin and subsequent restoration is not just for us. God has a plan for our pain. Brokenness and restoration is also for a watching world. Be encouraged, friend and sinner. God has forgiven you, and he's making you even better. And in this process, he's showing his grace to a, and his favor to a watching world. Now, I know that even after all of this, there might still be some of you that are saying, Raymond, I've been a Christian a long time, and I'm walking closely with Jesus. Well, guess what? Praise God. Praise God for keeping you away from sin, giving you strength to walk with him, and keeping you the way you should be go. Remember that restoration is an ongoing and a continual process. We should always be asking Jesus to show us, is there any unrepentant sin in my heart? And we should always be longing for even deeper relationship with God. He's the one keeping us 
and making us who he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. Now let's conclude with this. If there's any of this message that's new to you, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening to this message. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. Our text tells us to offer prayer to him in a time where he may be found. We don't know how much time we have. God is patient and gracious, but if you're here today and you're listening to this message, it's for a reason. He made you and wants to restore you. He wants to have a relationship with you, but you have to admit that you're broken and that that brokenness has separated you from God. Ask God to restore you. Ask God to be with you. Confess that you cannot rebuild yourself. Just as foolish as it sounds for a building to try to build back itself and put its own bricks on top. We cannot do it. We need an architect. We need a laborer. And that's Jesus. It takes Jesus to rebuild and restore our souls. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I ask you today to believe that Jesus came to restore you. I ask you to accept this invitation to begin, to invite Jesus in, to begin this project in your heart and in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your forgiveness, God, as we confess our sin, as we admit that we've done wrong and tell you, Lord, I've messed up. God, that we can accept your forgiveness. And sometimes it's so hard to forgive ourselves. God, we accept that you have provided forgiveness on the cross, that you died and shed your blood to remove our sin, to take away our transgression, to leave us with no deceit in our heart. God, help us as we let this message of your words soak into our hearts. We love you. We thank you for restoring us and for protecting us, for lifting us up out of the waters. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.